Welcome back to our study of 2 Kings. This is likely our next to last study in 2 Kings. We'll be picking up at the end of chapter 23 and then working our way through 24, which will leave chapter 25 for next time, which will probably be our last time in this book. Now, let's pick it up in verse 31 of 2 Kings chapter 23. Remember, we just saw the reign of Josiah, who was a good and godly king who removed idolatry, not only from Jerusalem, but from in the temple and from uh, the land of Israel, and even addressed idolatry going all the way back to King Solomon. But he died. He was killed by Pharaoh Necho. And uh, his son Jehoahaz became king in his place. That's where we pick it up in verse 31. It says, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the, hand, in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in, his pl in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. Now let's pause there. Uh, all those names can get pretty confusing, but here's what's happening. Jehoahaz has become king in the place of his father, uh, Josiah. But unlike Josiah, Jehoahaz is not a godly king. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, and it says he did that according to all that his fathers had done. That doesn't mean uh, according to Josiah, but to his ancestors, his predecessors. So Josiah was an exception, but many of the kings before him uh, had been wrapped up in idolatry and done what was evil. And Jehoahaz follows more in their footsteps than in his father Josiah's. But Pharaoh Necho is apparently quite powerful at this point and has power over the nation of Israel such that he removes Jehoahaz from being king, takes him uh, into Egypt, he bound, right? He's essentially arrested and hauled off to another nation, to the nation of Egypt, and there he dies. And Pharaoh Necho uh, replaces Jehoahaz with another son of Josiah and makes him king. And uh, his name is Jehoiakim, right? Uh, so uh, Jehoiakim is put on the throne in place of Jehoahaz. And um, his name was Eliakim, right? But Pharaoh changes his name to Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim uh, pays the tribute, or the tax, essentially, that Pharaoh has charged Judah with. So verse 35 says, And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. And so Jehoiakim uh, pays this tribute, this tax that Pharaoh has required. And the way he does it, of course, is by taxing the people. And so he takes the money from them and then delivers the money to Pharaoh. Pretty clear that Judah is in a bad spot at this point. 
Uh, verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So Jehoahaz was replaced by Jehoiakim, but Jehoiakim was not an improvement on Jehoahaz. He too was a man who did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was not a godly king. He was not a good king. And so uh, we can see already, right, that if we wondered, well, why didn't God spare Judah since Josiah was such a good king and he got rid of all the idols and he sought to honor the Lord and he responded rightly to God's word. Well, as soon as Josiah was gone, we're back to the same place. We've got wicked kings doing wicked things and that judgment that God had said would come upon Judah is still going to come. All right, so chapter 24 now, verse 1. <clears throat> In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. So Egypt had power over Judah for a while. Now Babylon has power over Judah. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. We meet him in the book of Daniel. So we know who he is. Um, he was a proud man that God had to humble. And uh, anyway, we learn more about him in the book of Daniel. But here, the king of Babylon has um, caused the king of Israel or Judah to become his servant. Um, but then Jehoiakim, the king, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 2 says, And the Lord sent against him, that is against uh, Judah and against uh, their king Jehoiakim. The Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. So all these different enemies, the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, right? the Syrians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, bands of these people are coming against Judah, and this is exactly what God said he would do. It tells us here that this uh, that they were um, sent by the Lord in verse 2. Um, and it happened at the end of verse 2 according to the word of the Lord. And then again in verse 3, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. Right, So this is God's doing. All these enemies coming against Judah, this is God's doing. And this is just what God said he would do. In fact, he said this just a few chapters ago in chapter 21, verse 12 to 15. It says, therefore, thus says the, God, the, the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. So all this that's coming upon Israel is a judgment, is a punishment, a consequence of their sin that God has brought upon them. 
and not just one or two recent sins, but a whole legacy of sin, we could say, a history of sin that goes all the way back to when God brought them out of Egypt and Aaron made the golden calf that they worshipped there at the base of Mount Sinai. So they have been doing this. They have been turning against the Lord. They have been worshiping other gods, at least off and on, virtually from the beginning. And God has been merciful. God has been patient. God has sent them prophets. God has called them to turn back to him. He has given them uh, good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. But again and again and again, the people have turned back and often the kings themselves have led the people to turn to idols, to turn to other gods. And so finally, after much patience, much mercy, um, after many opportunities to repent, God is bringing this judgment upon his people. Now, one of the reasons why it's really important uh, for the writer of 2 Kings to make sure we know that God is bringing this about is because at that time in the world, if a nation was defeated by another nation, the assumption was that the nation who won had the bigger, stronger, more powerful gods. Of course, the Bible makes really clear there's only one God. The gods, the Babylonians and the, the Syrians and the Ammonites and all, the gods that they are worshiping are no gods at all. In fact, behind those gods are actually demonic powers. And there's only one true God. He is the one who is almighty, right? Greater than all other supposed gods. And so the Bible makes really clear that when God's people suffer when like when they're defeated by their enemies or when they're taken into exile as they're about to be makes very clear that this is not happening because the gods of another nation have overpowered the god of israel but instead that the god of israel has handed over his people to another nation because they have turned away from him and often turned to other gods so it's very important, right, that we understand that the reason this is happening is because they have turned away from the Lord. It's not that God is weak, but God is handing them over to judgment. He's bringing this about because of their sin. All right, so let's pick it up. Verse 5. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So the Babylonians are the ascendant power at this point, right? They have uh, taken even some of what belonged to Egypt. So the king of Egypt is mostly out of the picture now. Babylon is ruling, is in charge. And... Um, Jehoiachin is now king after Jehoiakim. That's, those names are really, really similar, right? Verse 8, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. So here we go, another king doing evil. At that time, it says, verse 10, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. Let's pause there. We have been building up to this for some time now in 2 Kings. This, the exile is coming. The destruction of the temple is coming in the next chapter. Here, the temple is being plundered and the people are being taken away into exile in Babylon. Remember, Isaiah warned about this when Hezekiah welcomed the visitors from Babylon and showed them all the treasury and whatnot. Uh, Isaiah told him what was going to happen. And here it is, right, beginning to happen. So the king surrenders to Babylon. Uh, he and not just himself, but his family and uh, many of the most uh, influential people in the city, uh, the officials and whatnot, are carried off into exile. Uh, verse 14 says, He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So you have the king of Babylon again, replacing the king of Judah. Uh, you have the king of Babylon changing his name, uh, just like Pharaoh had changed one of the names of a king that he set up and installed uh, back at the end of chapter 23. And uh, so Judah has been um, plundered here uh, of people and possessions. Right, so um, much that they had is taken away by the Babylonians, taken away into a foreign land. It says only the poorest people of the land are left. Uh, all the, the fighting men and all the leaders and all, all the people like that, they have been carried off and are taken into exile. Right? Here's what's significant about that. We're going to tie this up and also connect it to um, the beginning of the Bible and going to connect it to what uh, God has done for us. All right, so verse 18 says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. So here again, another wicked king. And then notice this. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. All right, so he cast them out of his presence, it says in verse 20. And back in verse 3, it said that he removed them out of his sight. Here's what's significant about that. Right, the promised land is the place where God had put his people, put his temple, put his name. This is the place where God dwelled in their midst. This is the land God prepared for them, and they were supposed to obey him and walk with him. But they didn't. They 
broke his covenant, they turned from him, they turned to false gods, and as a result, now he has removed them from the land, removed them out of his sight, removed them from his presence. Now, of course, God sees everything and God is present everywhere. What this language means is that their relationship with God is being affected. Their fellowship with God is being, in a sense, cut off. Right? They are being removed from his presence. This is the same kind of thing that happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God made a special place for them to live, that garden. He placed them there. He gave them a commandment not to eat from a particular tree. They turned from him. Instead of trusting him, Eve listened to the words of the serpent. Adam joined her. They rebelled against God, and what happened? They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They were removed from that place. Part of what's significant about that is that God dwelt with them there. When they sinned, they made clothes for themselves and they hid because they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was a place where they were to walk with God, to have fellowship with God. But now that they have sinned, they are kicked out of the garden, removed from God's fellowship, removed from the place where God walked with them, and cast out east of Eden. Now the same thing has happened to Israel, to Judah. They have turned from the Lord, they have disobeyed His commandments, and they are being cut off from fellowship with Him. They removed from His presence out of the garden, or excuse me, out of the promised land, which is like a new Garden of Eden. Now, in the future, at the end of the Bible, there's going to be another, better promised land, a newer uh, renewed or, or um, even superior sort of garden of Eden, a, a, a temple city, or excuse me, a garden city in the new heavens and the new earth. It's like a new Eden. It's like a new promised land. There's a new Jerusalem. It's an entirely new creation, right? A new heavens and a new earth where God's people get to dwell with them. How do we know that we will never get cast out of that place? Israel got cast out of the promised land. Adam and Eve got cast out of Eden. How do we know that we'll never spoil what God gives us in the new creation? How do we know that we'll never turn away from Him and then get cast out like Adam and Eve did and like Israel did? Well, the answer to that is because of what Jesus did. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took our sin upon his shoulder. He took our punishment in our place. He endured what we deserve. He bore God's wrath. He cried out that cry of forsakenness so that we would never be forsaken, so that we would never be cast out of God's presence, that despite all of our sin, we would never be removed from God's sight. Instead, Jesus says, in just John 6, 37, all who the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What happened to Adam and Eve will never happen to us. What happened to Israel and Judah will never happen to us. If you're a Christian, you will never be cast out of God's presence. Why? Not because we're better than Adam and Eve or because we're better than Israel. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, as we read their stories, we see ourselves there. We often turn from the Lord. We often trust other voices rather than God's. Choose our way rather than God's way. 
turn to other things, make other things ultimate in our life besides God. We do the same kinds of things. We sin like they sinned. What's different for us is not that we're different, but God has done something for us to make certain that we will never have to live without him, never have to be outside of his presence. If we trust him, if we turn to Jesus, if we belong to Jesus, if we come to Jesus, Jesus will never ever cast us out. There will never be exile for us away from God's presence because Christ took our place, took our punishment, and secured for us an eternal life, an eternal salvation, so that we might always, always, always be in God's presence. Praise God for that. God bless.